This is the Frankly Daniel Show, and I'm the Daniel and the Frankly part of this enterprise. It's my weekly exercise of our First Amendment rights, and it's an honor to be here today with you. So much to cover, and I have so much to say. Your time is precious, and I appreciate it. So let's jump right in. Today's show is entitled, Our Problem Isn't Racism, It's Leftism. Right here, right now, and at the top of today's show, I want to express how delighted and honored I am to be part of the America Out Loud Network. If you're listening to my show, I'm sure you're aware of the tremendous asset America Out Loud is, especially in today's world of disinformation, misinformation, and flat-out lies by networks like MSNBC, CNN, The New York Times, and of course The Washington Post. These were all once great sources of information. These were all once great franchise leaders. That's until they went woke. So when did that happen? Probably sometime during the Obama-Biden administration. We just didn't know how woke the media had gone until Donald J. Trump beat locker up Hillary Clinton in 2016. That's when we saw the contrast. 90% of liberal news coverage from these media giants not only went super woke and super negative about Donald Trump, but they also attacked every one of over 75 million Trumpers and those of us who simply believe in America and and we just wanted to make America great again. Come 2020, we didn't think things could get any worse, but, but they did. Social media ganged up to censor conservatives in every which way imaginable. And I believe that Biden not only dishonestly won the election because of voting irregularities, and I'm being kind and just leaving it there, but because of America's short attention span and negative news. Most of the news Americans get amounts to little more than scrolling their phones for headlines. We're a nation run on headlines. Who bothers to actually read the stories below the headlines? I mean, who has time? We love the headlines that come with colorful pictures that are often placed with headlines to elicit an emotional reaction. All liberal media headlines are really psychological warfare, aren't they? They're always targeting some specific emotion. They never let the truth get in the way of of their mission. This week, the New York Times ran an opinion piece entitled... (laughs) There's no good reason you should have to be a citizen to vote. That's actually the headline. There's no good reason you should have to be a citizen to vote. That makes perfect sense to me, right? I encourage you to look it up. It ran in the July 28th issue. Now, not surprisingly, Democrats agree with this headline, and the rest of us can be damned. The Times says right under this title, This essay is part of a series exploring bold ideas to revitalize and renew the American experiment. This article promotes the idea that anyone in the United States deserves the right to vote for president, to Congress, and and anybody in local and state elections. And everyone is welcome to vote. 
I mean, can you explain to me how this story represents a bold idea meant to revitalize and renew the American experiment? <laughs> we have 25 million undocumented aliens living surreptitiously in America. And there's a million every six months more of them coming in. Yes, the Democrats want all 25 million eligible to vote. They want them to be able to vote early and often by mail. Want to ransack and destroy America? This is the perfect plan for that. Or how about this New York headline story that ran uh, July 30th in, the, in that edition? How Biden got the infrastructure deal Trump couldn't. The early success of the deal vindicated the president's faith in bipartisanship. If he can keep it on track, it will help affirm the rationale for his presidency. I don't think you can possibly come up with a rationale for his presidency. I mean, are you kidding? There is nothing bipartisan about the bill Biden and the Democrats really want to pass. They want the $3.5 trillion plan. And just because Senators Romney, Susan Collins, and Lisa Murkowski have signed on to it doesn't make it a bipartisan deal. These three senators are the worst of the worst Republicans in name only, or as conservatives say, rhinos. You won't, uh, you won't see nonsense like this on the America Out Loud network, but you will find one heck of a lot of well-thought-through commentary and articles in response to this kind of garbage. If, if I was asked to give one word that best describes America Out Loud, I'd say that word is authentic. Every contributor on this network, myself included, speaks in his or her own voice. We're free to express our thoughts and share the facts as we find them with you. There's never any interference. There's no network bullies like at CNN or MSNBC writing our scripts for us. In today's crowded planet of media, America Out Loud is on top of the world for conservative speech. And you'll find every show and every printed column straightforward, honest, and sincere. You have my word on that. But please know that America Out Loud just didn't happen by chance. It's been Malcolm's long-nurtured vision come to life. Malcolm is the brains and lifeblood of this network, and he's always been there for his dedicated family of listeners and network media contributors like myself. Malcolm is the founder of America Out Loud Talk Radio and of America Out Loud Podcast. He's also the publisher of America Out Loud and host of The Voice of the Nation and Viewpoint This Sunday. Now, I highly recommend you listen to both Malcolm's daily Voice of the Nation at 5 and 6 p.m. daily and his outstanding Sunday show at 10 p.m. Malcolm's Viewpoint This Sunday show follows my Frankly Daniels show. Mine starts at 9, his starts at 10. Malcolm has a franchise voice, and once you hear him speak, you'll understand the gravitas he brings to every show. Now, Malcolm and I both know time is precious and we all have too little of it. Still, it's a blessing to know where to get the information we need to hold the mendacious Biden administration in check until we can vote Americans back into office. The pernicious rabble of progressive Marxists ruling the White House will be the death of America if we don't stay informed. Make no mistake, haven't you had enough of Biden and these pretend Democrats? This administration isn't just another suffer-through-it-Democrats-as-usual. Ah, Biden's a loose cannon, but he's not running the show. The Obama people have joined with today's American Marxists and are out to fundamentally change America into something most of us would have never, ever imagined. 
More importantly, the fight is about which America are we going to bequeath to our children. Democrats have become the great American dividers. They're deconstructing America. They're reverse engineering America. We're no longer the great melting pot of cultures and languages or of politics. Democrats have been working hard at separating us into identity groups, if you haven't noticed, and pitting us against each other. Now, those who refuse to get the COVID-19 vaccine, for whatever reason, are considered by Democrats as criminals, and several other names I'm not going to repeat here. Democrats want the vaccinated to turn on the unvaccinated as if they're some sort of anti-American. I mean, what, whatever happened to personal liberty? Isn't freedom of choice a sacred American value? Whatever happened to the saying, my body, my choice? Oh, this only pertains to abortions where there's real life and death decisions going on. Uh, the same with face masks. I mean, what business is it of the government if I wear a mask? And isn't this the way with everything with Democrats? Illegal immigration versus citizens' rights? Fossil fuels versus their green energy? Critical race theory versus my child's education? Systemic racist police? Please give me a break on that one. Equality versus equity? Guns in the Second Amendment? Media censorship in the First Amendment? A wise person said, without context there is no meaning. We constantly hear all sorts of political claims and laments. These are the headlines I was talking about. But if we don't have the necessary context to place and understand the information we receive, then I'd say it's impossible to make any meaningful sense of it. And this is my gripe about establishment media's use of emotional, triggered, disingenuous headlines. If I were to tell you that critical race theorists are a clear and present danger to our children and tell you nothing else, what good does this headline statement do for you? You should have questions of why and how are CRT enthusiasts a danger to our children. Now, the good news is that on America Out Loud, you'll find a dozen different perspectives of the whys and the hows of CRT's threat to all of us. America Out Loud commentators and authors will give you the context and the meaning to almost any of the major issues before us as conservatives. This, among other reasons, is why I'm constantly listening to and reading the columns of my colleagues on America Out Loud. I mean, they provide the context for statements like the one above and for numerous lies that pass through for news headlines on liberal media. Now, it's my experience that when I discuss topics like critical race theory with those on the political left, all I get from them, if anything at all, is goofy statements like, when I see racial disparities, I see racism. Go ahead and try to get them to explain that statement as it applies to your local school setting or your community or your church or your gone woke school board. All they can give you are circular arguments. On its face, when I see racial disparities, I see racism is a stupid, unprovable statement, but you hear it all the time. Consider this. If statistically more black babies are born on Tuesday in Chicago than white babies, or, take a, an example, more black babies are born on Wednesdays than any other day of the week, are these evidence that these statistical disparities are due to racism? By the way, these types of statistical quirks happen all the time. 
Now, the quote from above, when I see racial disparities, I see racism, is from Ibram X. Kendi, one of several uh, fathers to the critical race theory. Racism for Kendi is like air. It, it's, it's everywhere. Now, here's another actual fact. Black student truancy and high school dropout rates are significantly higher than for either white or Asian American students. CRT enthusiasts claim that this is due to racism. More black students come from lower socioeconomic households than whites or Asians, and this largely explains what they're talking about in regard to racism. The poverty, they claim, is the reason for truancy, disruptive student behavior, leading to suspensions, and, of course, high school dropouts. But this statement ignores a substantial body of empirical research. Studies show that single-parent households, where the single parent is the student's mother, or if you're a Democrat, you call them birthing units, that mother is a critical variable in a child's school attendance, school behavior, and their child's risk of dropping out of school before graduation. I don't know how you explain that single matriarchal parentage models espoused by CRT supporters and Black Lives Matter is racist. Most black single-parent families are single by choice. This choice can't possibly be due to racism. I mean, can it? CRT and Black Lives Matter claim that their African village model, and it's their, it's their words, it takes a village to raise a child, is superior to Western culture's nuclear two-parent model. Not only does Black Lives Matter and CRT rave about the superiority of their African village model, their words once again not mine, but they go on to denigrate Americans' nuclear family model as, you guessed it, racist. Curiously, there are scores of national longitudinal adolescent health and behavior studies showing that intact nuclear families, as defined as both biological parents raising their children in one household, is superior on a wide array of outcomes versus single-parent models. For instance, students who live with their married biological parents carry, on average, a higher GPA, 2.9, compared to a 2.5 GPA of students who live in an always single-parent family. In fact, nuclear family intactness is one of the greatest positive influences on high school graduation rates and many other positive student behaviors. Other studies show that adolescents from single-parent families are more likely to have lower achievement scores, lower expectations for college, lower grades, and higher dropout rates than children from intact two biological parent families even after you control for other socioeconomic factors. For instance, 36% of individuals who came from intact nuclear families receive a bachelor's degree, whereas only 8% from always single-parent families did the same. And these types of findings go on and on and on. In response, you often hear that black students are trapped in poverty, whereas white students aren't. Uh, for the left, black poverty is, is racist. Now, I don't know what they call white or Asian family poverty, but perhaps they don't think it exists in single-parent white and Asian families. Anyway, uh, CRT and Black Lives Matter say single black mothers don't have the resources to move to better neighborhoods with better schools 
and if they're working, they don't have the time to give their children to help with homework and other school-related matters. And here's the irony of ironies. In a recent report on the abysmal performance of the Baltimore public schools, one single black mother of five children just found out this June that her 17-year-old son wasn't going to graduate this past June. It, it turns out that he'd been absent for more than 50% of his classes, going all the way back to when he entered the school as a freshman. So in the last three and a half years, he'd only passed two classes out of 36. Now, his mother said she was never alerted by the Baltimore Public Schools that her son was absent from school. I don't know. I don't mean to generalize from this example, but obviously this single parent has been been too busy to notice. I have an upcoming show detailing all the educational tragedy occurring in the disaster that's the Baltimore public schools. What a disaster it is. Nevertheless, it's a statistical reality that on average two-parent families have higher incomes than single-parent families of any race, and on average they have more collective time to give to their children's educational needs, including homework, class selection, and teacher conferences. So I dispute that CRTs and Black Lives Matter claim that, that the village is doing a superior job when it comes to shepherding black children through the prism of public education. Now much of what I've just shared with you I've learned from following the commentary and written columns by my America Out Loud colleagues. So staying truthfully and contextually informed is the best thing we can do now to prepare for the upcoming elections. I, I believe when I say we should all be as fortunate to have a Malcolm in our lives, and you can by listening to him and his family of conservative voices on America Out Loud. So thank you, Malcolm, and thanks to all the America Out Loud's contributors and importantly listeners who are helping to spread the truth and helping to make America great again. So how's that been now for a promotional message? Please know I meant I meant it all. I sincerely meant every single word of it. But while the right information and context are necessary, they're not sufficient to reclaim America's future. We must know and follow our conservative candidates. We must support them and turn out to vote for them. They can't win these uh, seats that are in our best interest as conservatives if we don't support them. Now, they, they always need money. Uh, consider making a modest donation to their campaigns. They always need volunteer help to make phone calls, distribute campaign information, and the like. There's always something that needs attention. Remember, Democrats do support their candidates, and often we lose because we got out-hustled by ordinary citizens on the other side. I encourage you to find out who your local, county, and state candidates are for many of the upcoming 2022 races. It's never too soon to start looking for who's running for offices in your state legislature. These state house seats are critical to maintaining your state's control of state laws and legislation. A Republican House and Senate legislature here in Florida has made all the difference these past 24 months of COVID hysteria. I can't imagine having lived the past two years in New Jersey, New York, Michigan, or California. How about the candidates running for your congressional district's house seats? Now, I live in Florida District 13. That includes St. Petersburg, Largo, and Clearwater. I'm backing a candidate named Anna Paulina Luna. 
Anna is an authentic conservative and an outstanding campaigner who will be running on Florida's largely Democrat-controlled district this 2022. But she's got an excellent chance to win this time because, among other things, the current Democrat in the district's House seat, Charlie Crist, is going to run against Ron DeSantis, our current governor. Now, Anna lost in 2020 to Charlie Crist, who's currently a Democrat, who was Florida's Republican governor in 2007 to 2011. Mr. Crist won this House seat that he's in in 2016-2018 and 2020 because the Democrat Party largely helped him finance his re-election campaign, and Charlie's been in Florida politics since, since Moses parted the Red Sea. Also, more than 90% of incumbents win re-election, just as a matter of fact. But he's been nothing short of a Pelosi rubber stamp on every vote in Congress. Let me bend your ear for a moment about Florida politics. Charlie Crist is all about Charlie Crist. I'm sure you have politicians in your district who are pretty much the same. Well, why do we keep re-electing these people? They don't stand on principles or values we share. So many of them are just rubber stamps for the Democrat Party's leadership, the leadership of Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. These two clowns are so afraid of the radical progressives in their party that they've moved so far left that they've moved one more inch further to gotta fall off the edge of the planet. Well, back to Democrat Charlie Chris. Now, Charlie lost the Republican Senate primary race in 1998 to Bob Graham. That's back when Charlie was a Republican. Now, Charlie found his way into Florida's Department of Justice as its Republican Attorney General from 2003 to 2006. Then Charlie won the governorship in 2007, but he decided to pass up re-election for a run at the Senate again in 2010. But he lost to Marco Rubio in the Republican primary. So Charlie registered as an independent and declared himself as a candidate to run against Marco Rubio in the general election. <laughs> well, Marco Rubio won, Charlie lost. But being the political courtesan callboy that Charlie is, he switched parties in 2012 and became a Democrat, campaigning for Barack Obama and Joe Biden for their second term. In 2014, Charlie announced he was running as a Democrat for his second term as Florida's governor. You're allowed two terms as governor, and Charlie had only served one term in 2007 to 11. Now, as you probably all know, Rick Scott beat Charlie, and Scott went on to win a second term as governor, and is now the junior senator from Florida. After that loss, Charlie ran in 2016 as a Democrat from Florida's 13th district, and that includes, like I've said before, St. Petersburg, Largo, and Clearwater. He won that race and has held that seat ever since. But now he's going to give up that spot to run against Ron DeSantis in 2022. Assuming Charlie loses to Ron DeSantis, I suppose he'll change political parties again and become a registered Democratic Socialist. Who knows? Stay tuned. I have to interrupt this program to share with you something that just came across the wires not too long ago. Uh, the Biden administration has renewed its Title 42 restrictions on Canadians crossing over the northern border into the United States, even if they have a negative uh, COVID test. They're not allowed to legally enter the country. Now, the, you know, what a scream. They're, never mind. Anyway, you know, if you leave the country and go to Mexico, if you cross the border, go to Mexico, to get back in the country as a citizen, 
you have to have a negative COVID test. Well, good luck getting one in Mexico. But anyway, if you're an illegal alien, you don't you don't need either. You just come on into the country. Uh, what a country that! What a what a deal it is, Biden administration. Yeah. Well, back to Florida. Of course, I'm backing the world's best governor, Ron DeSantis, in 2022. What a difference a right governor makes in one's life. Not until the pandemic had I realized how important a conservative governor can, that can be to one's well-being. No masks, schools were open, businesses weren't shut. Ron DeSantis has passed laws against vaccine passports, against schools and colleges mandating vaccines, against critical race theory, and public schools, against rioting and destructive mobs, against schools shutting down, and many other critical policies that have made life as carefree as it can be in these troubled times. I encourage you to start looking now as to who's running for your district congressional seat. Does your state have a Senate seat or a governorship up for taking? This is how we're going to take back the Congress, one congressional seat and one Senate seat at a time. After all, we have an exceptional nation to pass on to our children, but first, we have to ensure it's still there when it comes time to hand it off. Now, it took me longer to share this information with you about Florida than it took me to look it up. So I know coming up to speed on the races in your area is not going to take an awful lot of time. So please get involved. Your fellow conservatives need your help. Your country needs you now. I thank you. So let's move on. While this isn't the topic I planned on talking about today, it's the topic I'm compelled to say something about because it makes me nuts. And if I don't get it off my chest, I won't be at peace. So here we go. I'm sure you've heard that the CDC just released new COVID mitigation advisories for all pre-kindergarten, kindergarten, elementary, middle, and high schools. Their cockamamie guidance recommends face masks for everyone, everywhere, all the time at school. The fact that this cloak-and-dagger teacher union CDC collaboration recommends face masks is a sick joke. There are still several not-for-profit conservative organizations suing the CDC via the Freedom of Information Act for all the correspondence from both the American Federation of Teachers Union and the CDC during last year's union-led school shutdowns. Per usual, expect every school district to mandate masks out of fear they'll be sued if, perchance to dream, someone comes down with a bad case of COVID and they can somehow prove it happened at school. Can you imagine the first open school board meetings this fall around the country? Well, my fellow Americans, how did you feel watching footage on the news of domestic terrorists looting our stores and burning our cities down? Uh, you were probably disgusted and angry as much as I was. It's disturbing what's going on. Well, you'd be shocked to know that your shopping habits are supporting these extremists. Companies like Amazon, Nike, Disney, FedEx, it's an endless list. And they've been supporting these radical groups. Let's stop supporting companies that fund these extremist groups. We can all do our part. Visit shoptotheright.com and you'll find businesses in a nationwide database and companies that are aligned with our American values. 
Visit shoptotheright.com and let's all make a difference. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Well, there was a time when Americans could rely on the fourth estate. Well, in these challenging times, the media is both reckless and complicit. AmericaOutloud.com. Top analysis from leading experts, articles, podcasts, video, and 24-7 talk radio. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Greetings and hallucinations, and welcome back to the Frankly Daniels Show. As I was about to say, the teachers' unions have signaled they hope schools will open this fall. But they're making no predictions, stating that they must keep their members safe. What do you mean they hope? They hope? What, stay safe? Who are they talking about? Indeed, not the students, the children, those who can't afford any more time away from in-person, in-class instruction. They can't be talking about those people. Hope? Oh, please. I don't know if you know this, but there are numerous reports that only 50% of union teachers are COVID vaccinated. This is particularly in urban areas that are heavily democratic. (laughs) Yes, after all the hullabaloo about teachers' demands to be vaccinated before agreeing to teach last year, Approximately only 50% of union members are vaccinated. Uh, Perhaps this is why Randy Weidgarner, the president of the AFT, hasn't come right out and said that the teachers, all union teachers, will be in the classrooms this fall, regardless of COVID pronouncements by the CDC. Now, as a caveat, allow me to say that I don't mean to paint all teachers with a broad brush of disgust over their union's far-left-out political positions. I have outstanding and dedicated teachers in my family, and I'm sure you do too. But the two dominant teachers' unions, the American Federation of Teachers and the National Education Association, are far-left political organizations. These aren't your typical, quote-unquote, professional-oriented groups. Nonetheless, they better hope schools open without delay, and that there are no shutdowns due to teacher no-shows. Yeah, we all remember that the clueless CDC and the teachers' unions, along with the scared progressive school boards, shut down schools last year and kept them shut down 
despite mounds of evidence that shutdowns were entirely unnecessary. Despite knowing full well, they did this despite knowing our children would suffer incalculable learning losses they'd likely never recover from. Back then, teachers' unions justified their opposition to open schools, saying schools, they couldn't be open safely. They meant they couldn't teach in person to students in a classroom in a school. But somehow, 92% of all Catholic schools were open for in-person, in-class learning the entire school year. That's right, from September all the way to May and June of uh, this year. Nearly every private school was likewise open. But nationally, only 42% of traditional public schools did the same. And most of the schools that managed to stay open the entire school year were in states like Florida and Texas, where governors stepped forward and directed schools to be open. And now parents are being threatened by the teachers' unions and the stupidity of the CDC again? I mean, to even hint that there could be school closings or delays because of the Delta variant of COVID-19 is incredibly irresponsible. It's really unbelievable. And what has the government been up to to try to solve this whole issue of whether children really benefit from wearing masks? Well, despite an annual NIH budget of $42 billion, I know that usually uh, the Biden administration always talks in terms of trillion, but we're, we're back to billion. $42 billion is a lot of money. There's not one NIH-funded study of mask effectiveness in children. Uh, they've had more than two years to launch a Fauci-blessed study of this type, but no, Joe Biden likes masks. Perhaps they already understand that it's foolish to waste research funds to learn that masks are totally unnecessary in children. And I don't think they have much use in adults either, by the way. Nevertheless, there are foreign peer-reviewed studies showing that mask wearing among children pose health risk from constantly rebreathing their own carbon dioxide, not to mention innumerable face rashes and nasty bacterial infections. And the pictures of this are really disgusting. There are truckloads of studies showing that learning deficits incurred by young students because of school shutdowns is both economically and psychologically destructive. So how do you weigh these two against each other? It's just nuts. The statistics of teen suicides, especially among young girls, are off the wall and only recently have begun to decline, and now we're going to go back to this whole cycle again. But the significant learning loss among minority students, many of who don't have home computers or Wi-Fi, this is, it, it's demonstrably terrible. We know at least two things about COVID and school shutdowns. Two things we've learned the hard way. First, kids are not at risk from COVID-19 or the Delta variant. And we know they aren't effective vectors to spread these viruses. Fewer than 400 children under the age of 12 have died with COVID-19. And I said with for a very important reason. 99% of these deaths, these patients, these young children, had other serious comorbidities like extreme obesity, asthma, or other respiratory diseases that made them a setup for these kinds of problems. And these children should have been looked at and separated out long before anything ever got to them. But this whole fantasy about children being at risk simply isn't true. Where the consequences of wearing masks and all the other baloney that's going on 
has serious consequences. So we know for certain that kids are not a risk from COVID and they're not very good vectors of spreading this virus. Second, we know online at-home learning has been a universal disaster. The studies decrying the failures of online grade school learning outpace success stories by 30 to 1. The Wall Street Journal just reported that in the spring of 2021, McKinsey Consulting Company examined test results from 1.6 million students in grades 1 through 6 across the entire U.S. They then compared these test performance statistics with similar students' pre-pandemic scores. Surprise, surprise, they found that pandemic-era children were on average about four months behind in reading and five months behind in math. And McKinsey researchers said this was putting a happy face on the results. They were conservative in their estimates, believing the deficits are far more significant. In citing this study, the Wall Street Journal says that teachers' unions were the leading architects of last year's school shutdown calamity. By first refusing to return to the classroom, then refusing until they were all vaccinated, then insisting on watered-down schedules. And as I've already reported, it appears that less than, or there about 50% of union teachers (laughs) went ahead and got vaccinated. McKinsey also reported that most students could attend school at least part of the time by the end of the 2021 spring semester, but due to union demands, the return sometimes amounted to just a few days or a are hours of in-person, in-class learning every week. And there's more crushing news. McKinsey found that children in majority black schools ended the school year a full six to seven months behind in math and reading on average. Students in schools where the average household income was below 25,000 were seven months behind in math and only six months old in reading. Wow, This this is nearly a full academic year. We already know from national data that only 35 to 40 percent of fourth and eighth grade students in public schools are even proficient in reading and math scores at those particular grade levels. Now, McKinsey goes on to note that students who move on to the next grade unprepared are missing key building blocks of knowledge that are really foundational, are necessary for success, and students who repeat a year are much less likely to complete high school altogether, and they certainly aren't going to attend college. The high school dropout rate among minority students was already a growing problem before the pandemic. It accelerated throughout the online learning, and now we're waiting to see how many high school students will return this fall. Without immediate and sustained intervention, the McKinsey Report goes on to predict the lost earnings could slash lifetime earnings by an average of forty-nine dollars to $61,000. Now, the Wall Street Journal says that that amount seems awfully low to them, and they believe the damage could be worse than average for millions of people. And, and let's face it, I mean, parents need to return to work. Parents want to return to work. It's either return to work, or they may as well apply for their teacher certificate. I mean, no parent I've talked to is prepared to spend another year at home as a grade school and, and computer Zoom call instructor. I believe we're all fed up with the Biden Democrats who once again are trying to scare the nation into forced compliance with masks, vaccines, and school mandates. But let's place the blame 
where it belongs for the perpetual confusion with all things COVID. The Biden administration is responsible for the CDC and the folly of tiny tyrant Dr. Fauci. Follow the science is something neither the CDC, Biden, nor tiny tyrant Fauci has done from day one. That is, unless the science they're talking about is voodoo. I mean, if not for Trump pushing the heck out of the government's bloated bureaucracy, we wouldn't have one vaccine with which to fight COVID-19, much less have three of them. The same vaccines that Biden and Harris said they weren't going to take and then became such believers that they're trying to mandate vaccines on everyone. As for face masks, I'm glad I live in Florida, where our governor has already said there will be no mask mandates in public schools and schools will open. But I can imagine those first opening school board meetings this year. What do you think is going to come up first? Mask uh, tyranny or a critical race theory? Parents are incensed about teachers' unions and CRT. And for these unions to even be flirting with possible school delays or shutdowns, well, there's going to be big-time political fallout if this happens. I can't remember a time when parental involvement in school board decisions was ever this involved. What this nation needs and desperately needs now is universal school choice. School choice may be the civil rights issue of our time. Minorities living in crowded urban areas with suboptimal schools should be able to take their $16,000 voucher and go to any school of their choice. Yes, on average, taxpayers spend $15,000 per student for nine months of public school instruction and another $1,000 in administration and building fees per student. Parents confronted with obstinate progressive school boards need to be able to collect their $16,000 check, and heck, it may be actually even as high as $17,000 in their school district, and say, in proper Spanish, adios. We don't have a problem with racism in America. We have a problem with leftism. Well, let's, let's spend a moment on a lighter side. While the proverbial manure is hitting the COVID Delta variant fan, you've probably heard that good old Tony Fauci had authored an 80-page book that was to be released this fall. Its title? You won't believe the title. Its title is Expect the Unexpected, Ten Lessons on Truth, Service, and the Way Forward. The title, Expect the Unexpected, from Dr. Fauci? (laughs) As for ten lessons on truth, now there's a laugh. Its publication is still scheduled for November 2nd of 2021. Yeah, just in time for Thanksgiving. How about that? I'm surprised that Fauci believes he has enough truth to fill 80 pages. He must be using a really big font. Given he's been a federal bureaucrat for 57 years, you'd think he'd have more to say. My guess is that his attorneys have advised him to keep the book short. Probably lots of pictures. Perhaps he'll even have pop-up fold-outs like in children's books. The pop-outs are probably of different viruses, virology laboratories, and perhaps some of the Wuhan laboratory even. Well, a couple of months ago, you could pre-order Dr. Fauci's 80 pages of wisdom on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Uh, But that's no longer the case. Both sellers removed Dr. Fauci's pre-order page right after those 3,200 emails uh, hit the newsstands. (laughs) I was so looking forward to the pop-out fold-outs. 
alas. Well, finally, let's talk about today's topic. I'm planning on talking now and on next week's show about affirmative action and critical race theory and how they're impacting admission standards at our nation's most elite public exam schools. Naturally, when we talk about education today, we're rightly obsessed with the cancer of critical race theory. It appears as if it's metastasizing across all public school domains, not only creating hostile race relations, but also distorting reasons for academic performance failures among our African-American and Hispanic-American students. Yes, the political left has begun using critical race theory to excuse the persistent academic underperformance of blacks and Hispanic applicants to public exam or merit-based high schools. And there's quite a few of them, quite a few famous ones across the country. So yes, please plan on coming back next week because it's going to be a humdinger. There is a lot of really interesting information. Next week, I'm going to highlight how the relics of affirmative action and of how critical race theory are playing out in the fights over who gets admitted to our most elite and prestigious public exam schools. In particular, I'm going to examine some of the most famous exam schools from four geographically dispersed school systems. The first is Boston Latin and Boston Latin Academy in Boston, Massachusetts. The next is Stuyvesant High School, Brooklyn Technical High School, and Bronx Science School in New York City. The third is the Lowell School System in San Francisco, and finally, the Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology in Fairfax County, Virginia. Each of these public exam schools uses a combination of an applicant's grade point average and the results of any of several different standardized scholastic aptitude tests, such as the Preliminary Scholastic Aptitude Test, or the PSAT, or other tests like the Independent School Entrance Exam, the ISEE, uh, to make admissions decisions. Now, in New York, New York City uses the state's mandated specialized high school admissions test, or the SHSAT, as the sole criteria for admission. These admissions uh, criteria uh, make these schools merit-based public education institutions, or more commonly, they're referred to as exam schools. But as we well know, there's nothing is ever straightforward in America's attempt at meritocracy. Admissions committee and these prestigious elite academic institutions must find ways to accommodate issues of predominantly race, but also sex, and how they offer admissions to students, and in particular, black and Hispanic students. The political left rarely uses the language of affirmative action to describe what exam schools have had to deal with in their admission criteria. Nevertheless, affirmative action is driving the accommodation for accepting underperforming minorities in new enrolling classes, or that's what has motivated this accommodation in the past. But beware. Critical race theory is the new political force demanding minority student accommodations at all merit-based public exam schools. Now, according, as you probably already know it, to CRT, according to CRT, the only merit black and Hispanics need to qualify for acceptance into an elite exam school is the color of their skin. Past academic performance is irrelevant. They claim that black and Hispanic students have been discriminated against in all aspects of society by the very nature of the color of their skin. 
Therefore, GPAs and standardized tests are white inventions designed to perpetuate white dominance in the admissions processes. Unfortunately, affirmative action and CRT are zero-sum undertakings. As a result, minority winners of class placement come at the expense of higher-performing white and Asian-American students. Now, ironically, the far left doesn't consider Asian-Americans a minority when it comes to education, not even if they're first-generation Asian-Americans. Asian students outcompete all races in math and reading and test scores almost always. Now, the left has no problem claiming Asian-Americans a minority when it comes to what Trump said about the Wuhan coronavirus lab leak or the Chinese flu or when black on Asian crime pops up. Democrats have so many double standards that the double standards are developing double standards. But affirmative action and CRT are an admissions zero-sum game because class size is limited. Admissions are a scarce resource and thus the school can't accept all students of academic merit and accommodate lesser performing minorities as well. Makes sense, doesn't it? Most recently, there's been an explosion of controversy over black and Hispanic student placements at Boston Latin School in Boston, Massachusetts. In fact, I expect the Boston Globe, a very liberal newspaper, to receive a Pulitzer Award for reporting this highly racially charged story over the last eight to ten months. Now, how each exam school goes about admitting academically underperforming black and Hispanic students into each new class is varied and it's constantly changing. Exam schools also have to cope with parents from different racial factions bringing lawsuits and protests that their students have been denied equal opportunity under the law, or more specifically, they've been discriminated against in violation of the 14th Amendment and the 1964 Civil Rights Law. Court rulings may then alter again how schools go about the task of admitting students, and then more lawsuits come after that. These schools have also had to live in an often racially charged political environment where city leadership changes, and with these changes come political changes in school boards and in city, county, and state school oversight committees. Because of affirmative action, exam school admissions committees give black and Hispanic students an application accommodation. These accommodations boost black and Hispanic students' aptitude test scores, or they increase the weight of their GPAs or some combination thereof thus allowing them to compete against other better-performing white and Asian applicants. But this is entirely the wrong focus, and in the end, I don't believe it serves the students or the community well. Correcting the academic underperformance of 6th and 8th grade black and Hispanic students doesn't start with acceptance into an elite public exam school. Underperformance problems and learning deficits must be addressed at the very beginning of the educational process not three-quarters of the way into it, now enter critical race theory. Critical race theory is the new affirmative action. According to critical race theory, Western European culture is somehow mythically woven into the fabric of our white-dominated society, and all interactions are subject to a deeply ingrained systemic white racism, of course at the expense of people of color, but in particular African and Hispanic Americans, but 
predominantly African. We must be awfully careful not to allow critical race theory to distract us from the very serious questions we must ask if we expect our children to inherit the mantle of the world's greatest republican democracy, but also to compete on the world stage against other socialist and authoritarian Marxist regimes like communist China. Educational affirmative action is failing. You might say it's on life support. Conservatives have written a do-not-resuscitate order for affirmative action. In contrast, Democrats have every intention of keeping affirmative action alive, but it's not where they're putting their energy these days when it comes to race relations. And if you've guessed where their energy is going, you'd be right to say critical race theory. So if affirmative action is failing, then who's to blame? Well, this is the two-part question. First, who's to blame for the massive policy failure of affirmative action in education? That's the first question. After all, the nation has carried forward this once-thought temporary remedy to past racial discrimination in admissions to our nation's best high schools and colleges for the past 55 years. The second part of this question assumes affirmative action has failed as a policy prescription. I contend affirmative action is and has always been a political policy solution and never an educational equal opportunity solution. Suppose affirmative action was about improving schools in impoverished, uh, under-resourced urban schools and, and encouraging American nuclear families to raise their children. In that case, affirmative action could have genuinely attempted to support minorities gaining meaningful access to the nation's best high schools and colleges. Now, I say meaningful because giving a minority student 200 extra points, or as in the case of Harvard College, giving black applicants 230 extra points on their SAT scores, or in the case of high school, their pre-high school PSAT exams, or having school teachers padding grades of minority students to raise their grade point average, that's not a kindness I'd want for myself or for my children. Eventually, a child's deficits will come out, and unfortunately, this often sets kids up for failure when they attempt to handle the coursework at their new school that they're simply not prepared for. If there's anything affirmative action has proven, is that you can't correct learning deficits at the ninth grade by boosting the scores of a student's PSAT test or padding their GPAs. Likewise, awarding minority applicants hundreds of points on top of their PSATs doesn't make them automatically that many points more capable in algebra, chemistry, or reading proficiency at any grade level. Moreover, giving black students extra credit for being from an allegedly socioeconomically challenged background over a more academically qualified white or Asian American doesn't make the black student any more capable in subject-related areas. There's a good chance that the Supreme Court will finally take up the lawsuit by Asian students against Harvard College in terms of admissions. I don't believe they can put it off any longer. Affirmative action even by Sandra Day O'Connor, the Supreme Court Justice who was the swing vote in the most recent affirmative action uh, school case, believed that affirmative action should have ended after 25 years, which would be 
just in three years from now. It should have ended. It's been around for 55 years. It was meant to correct a one-time deficit. It was meant to step people up at point in time, and it hasn't. Let me leave you with this. According to the National Science Foundation, people who are black or African-American earn barely 2% of the PhDs in physical sciences and in earth sciences in 2016. Universities awarded 1,730 doctorates in math and computer science in 2016. Only 78 of them went to black or African-American individuals. Even in the humanities, where African-American studies program and hiring have been an obsession for more than three decades, Black and African Americans didn't even reach 4% of the total. I believe it's because they're failing all the way back at fourth grade reading and math proficiency, and it's no place to try and correct that when you're going for your PhD. Well, I'm already over my time limit. Please come back next week. We've got an awful lot to talk about. So much more to come. So much more to say. Lord willing, I'm going to return. I regret I only have one life to give to my fellow conservatives, and I regret I only had one hour to give to this topic. I hope you found this show informative. Please follow me on Twitter. I do follow back. You can find me at DFB Harvard. I can't possibly thank you enough. You were so marvelous and patient with me again today. Next week, same place, same time. Cheers and blessings to all. Mm-hmm.